it now, believe it or not. Um, need to focus on doing. We're, we're, we're being enough. We're taking in God's Word. We're, we're involved. We're, 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 we're doing our devotions and otherwise. But, but we really need to think about getting busy, serving in, in some way. And we were taught from that passage, uh, exhorted from that passage to, to do that. The other flip side is, is some of us are serving and, and doing and, and we're tripping over the, the main thing. We, we've lost sight of the fact that the reason we do whatever we do is because of Jesus. And we need to get back to sitting at His feet and feeding on His Word. And that's one of the purposes that we have when we gather together is to hear from God in His Word. And His Word is perfect. And He always uh, covers the needs for the church and the specific needs for our hearts. So, if you're not there, I want you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're, we're at the fourth letter that Jesus writes to the, to the church. And it's got a very particular message. I'm going to show you that there are, there are multiple groups of people that are addressed in, uh, in, this, in this letter. But I want to begin with a question. Do you consider yourself a tolerant person? Do you, do you tolerate things well? Is it good to be tolerant? Well, I guess it would depend upon what you're being tolerant of, uh, whether that's good or bad. My parents right now are, are playing snowbirds in Florida over the winter because they say in their older age they can't tolerate the cold. Well, and some of you are this morning saying, I wish I was in Florida, right? My father-in-law that you prayed for is tolerating his medications well. He's, he's, uh, he's, he tolerated surgery well. Both of those are an example where tolerance is, a, is, is, a, is either a good or a neutral thing. But the Bible tells us that we can also become tolerant of things that we shouldn't. Did you know that? In our day, one of the worst labels that someone could give you is to call you intolerant. You're, you're intolerant. And what they mean by that is obviously something different from the Bible. Tolerance is an exalted character trait in, in our day. I would say in your grandfather's day, maybe even in your day, the, the greatest character trait might have been duty or courage or, or hard work. But today, we're praised in our world for our open-mindedness. Even churches have that in their, in their moniker. Their, their church is open minds, open hearts, open doors. We are to, to live and let live, as they say. Which, of course, applies to anyone other than Christians. You're not allowed to live. It's only everyone else. Have you ever noticed that those who preach tolerance in our, in our world, the loudest, are typically the most intolerant people? Have you ever paid attention to that? I'm sure that you have seen this bumper sticker, right? They're all over the place. Coexist. And I would say, now I don't want to be stereotypical, but if you would pull that person over and engage in a conversation about all those little symbols there, you would probably find them very intolerant unless you agreed that all of those religions could coexist, which is a logical fallacy because it's impossible for all of them to, to coexist. Christians are to be tolerant of others, 
but it's okay for everyone else to be intolerant of Christ. And you shouldn't be surprised about that. That should not offend you. In fact, it's exactly what the Bible declares. Jesus said, if they hated me, don't be surprised that they, that they hate you. The reason that there is so much intolerance toward Jesus Christ or the church or the Bible or you if you state a position authoritatively is because God is the absolute authority and fallen human beings don't like to be told what to do. I mean, we have a hard time being told what to do even as Christians, don't we? Now, you, you just, you just, you know, if you've been a parent or grandparent, you don't even have to have a, a better example than, than a little child who just starts to crawl of, of whether there's truly inborn sin that rebels against authority. You've seen the, uh, the, the little bundle of joy crawling away, crawling in the wrong direction, and you say, you know, Junior, don't go there. And Junior turns around and looks at you and kind of cracks a smile and keeps right on going. You typically have to apply the authority to the back seat of the pants before they get the, get the picture. It should not come as a shock that people are intolerant about Christ and about His authority. The whole world lies in the hands of the wicked one. We, prior to salvation, are rebels. We're enemies. Our hearts are at enmity toward God. I could give you plenty of other examples from Scripture that describes why human beings are intolerant toward God or the things of God. But it may come as a shock or a surprise to you that God describes Himself as being a very intolerant being. How does that sit, just that thought? That God describes Himself as a very intolerant being. Is there something in you that goes, wait a minute, that, that doesn't sound right. I mean, God is a God of love and God is a God of, 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 of care and, and grace. And, and all of that is true. But God describes Himself as a, as a very intolerant being. He is merciful towards sinners. He is quick to forgive. But He does not tolerate sin. Even salvation tells us that. God removes our sin. God deals with our sin. But God doesn't tolerate our sin. He deals with it. In fact, the Bible even says that God hates. He has an inner disposition that's set toward sin, toward wickedness, and toward, toward evil. He hates certain deeds. We've heard in the book of Revelation, He hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans, right? He hates teaching that is contrary to His Word. He hates the pain and the shame that sin brings to His people. The Bible describes God as long-suffering toward mankind. He's, he is... He's long-nosed before his nostrils begin to flare. It takes a long time for God to bring down the judgment that, that he should. But he's not accepting, easygoing, or open-minded when it comes to sin or wickedness and, and other things. Today, we're going to look at, at, uh, at a, a letter to a church called Thyatira, which is a, a corrupt church. And the church is corrupt because it tolerated sin. This letter is written to the church as a whole, and so Jesus brings His Word to the entire congregation. But obviously within that congregation, there are people that are engaged in sin, there are people that are tolerating the sin, and there are people that are completely consumed 
by the sin. So if you're not there, Revelation chapter 2, we begin reading in verse 18, and then I'll give you some, some details about the church, and we'll, we'll see what God has to say about the sin of tolerance. Verse 18, says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your endurance or patience. And your works, the last, are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit immorality, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am He who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I put no other burden on you. But hold fast what you have until I come. He overcomes and keeps my works unto the end. To him I will give the power over nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he and they shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. This is a fascinating letter. It's fascinating for, for a number of, of reasons. One is that quote that you probably have in your Bibles in verse 27, which is a quote from the Psalms, a Messianic Psalm. This is a letter that, if out of all of the letters, proves the literal thousand-year Messianic reign of Jesus Christ. And so you will find this letter referenced a lot about the millennial kingdom, that there is a kingdom coming one day. It's also fascinating because it's the longest of the seven letters written to the smallest church. Thyatira is a, is a town that's about 40 miles from, from Pergamum. You can see, you remember, I will just remind you, here is the first letter and it goes up to Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. And then we're going to move all the way back down. And so the Isle of Patmos is, is out here, and the letter comes in and moves around. Here is where Thyatira is at. It's a, it's a church that's about 40 miles from Pergamon. It's in the interior of Asia Minor. It's most famous for its, its purple dye. And the only other time it's mentioned in the Bible is Acts 16, verses 14 and 15, at the conversion of Lydia, who was a seller of, of purple. The dye that was made there, which, which made the, the town, um, made the town their primary money was made out of a matter root, but also, um, this is a mural of, of a, of a murex. It's a little rock snail that had, 
um, purple dye. Here's a picture of how it's excreting this purple dye, and they would take it and crush it, and, and they would use it in order to create purple threads. Now, today, color is no big deal to us. You're a very colorful congregation this morning, and you can go to the store and buy just about any color of anything that you want, some bright, some not so bright, but in that day, color was a big deal, and purple was not something that was readily available. And so it took a great deal of effort to create this, this dye, and so it was, it was very uh, expensive and famous. Here is a, here's a little girl today taking that purple dye that you can see here. This is obviously not during biblical times, and stretching the, the thread that's that's there the church though while it's known for the die because of acts and lydia was 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 very insignificant there's no major apostle attached to the church of Thyatira. it was not a significant pastor training or or missions uh church planning center like ephesus where ephesus was a was a was training people and sending out Apollos and Titus and, and others. It had no claim to fame in the earthly world or in the New Testament. This is not the only place that the purple dye was made. So it's remarkable that Jesus would single out such a small church in an obscure place for such an important letter. So the Messianic part, the fact that it's the longest letter, it's also the most severe Letter. You can read all seven, and you will find some of the strongest language here. Casting people on a sickbed. God is going to make people sick. He's going to bring death to some who refuse to repent. It's a very, very severe letter. There's a, there's a judgment oracle here, like you would find in the Old Testament when you would read Amos or otherwise. God declares judgment that He's going to bring on this this little church. So all of those things should cause us to, to pay attention. And the message of the letter is about the path to apostasy, and specifically in the church, the sin of, of tolerance. There are two audiences in the, in the letter, even though it's written to one church. There are the apostate individuals. They get the oracle of judgment, being cast on a sick bed and, and death. Then there are the authentic believers that are rebuked by Jesus for the sin of tolerance. One group is past repentance, and the other is called to repentant action. And the message to this little church doesn't just stay 2,000 plus years ago. It, it, has, it has vital words to speak to us today. The church is a garden, and there's growing both wheat and tares in the garden. It's very clear. The Bible says that. I'm under no delusion. Well, I would love to believe that every one of you are saved this morning. I'm under no delusion that everyone here this morning is regenerate. Oh, if you're not, I plead with you, come to Christ. But the Bible says that as the church of Christ gathers, they're both wheat and tares. And we're cautioned not to... They look very similar. You ever seen a little plant when it first comes up? And a weed, it looks very, very similar. So you're cautioned not to too quickly pluck up that, that tear and go searching for people. You take them at their profession of, of faith because you don't want to root up other believers. But we're also called to use great force in casting out the apostate ears once the fruit is clearly known. Once the plant grows and manifests false teaching, 
or sinful, unrepentant lifestyle, the Bible calls us to deal with it. God's church will be pure, or He will intervene. And that's really the the major message to this church. We're not to be too quick to cry heretic, but when heresy is clearly evident, we're called to be very intolerant people, very intolerant people of, of that which will damn someone's soul if they if they believe. So let me give you the outline here. We're dealing with the sin of tolerance. And you can find the church's discerning judge. In verse 18, Jesus makes a, gives a description of Himself. He describes Himself in a way that meets the need of the church. Then there's the visible church's condition. I say visible because He speaks to both those who are followers of Christ and those who are naming Christ that are unbelievers in the midst. That's verses 19 through 23. Then Jesus speaks to the authentic remnant, and He gives them remnant, and He gives them an exhortation. He speaks to the true believers there, and I'll show you that contrast in the passage, verses 24 and 25. And then He makes a promise to the overcomers, and that promise has to do with the kingdom that is coming. There is coming a kingdom. Aren't you glad? This world is in a horrible mess. But Jesus is coming one day. And when He comes, He's going to rule with a rod of iron. And those of you who know Him and follow Him and hold fast until He comes, you will get to rule and reign with Him in a, in a perfect place. So let's look at the first one. The church is discerning judge in verse 18. To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like fine brass. Now, the Lord follows the same pattern that He does here in the other letters, and He begins with giving a description of Himself that corresponds with the church's situation. And that's really what you need to pay attention to when you're reading all these letters, because you, you just read over that first verse, and, oh, yeah, yeah, that's Jesus, and eyes like this and feet like that. Well, he describes himself specifically to meet the need that the church has. It, you think of it like turning a diamond into another angle and in the light seeing an additional perfection. And he describes his, his deity here. He says, this says the one who is the Son of God, or these things says the Son of God. The first thing he emphasizes is his deity. And the description has already been given in this similar way back in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, but there's one major distinction. In verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1, Jesus introduces Himself with eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished brass, but He calls Himself the Son of Man, not the Son of God. His deity is everywhere, all over the, all over the book of Revelation, which links it, Son of Man links Him to the the Old Testament prophecy in Daniel. But this is the only place in Revelation in the, in, the, in the churches where he's described as the Son of God. The diversion from true worship of Jesus was so serious in the church of Thyatira, it called Christ to reiterate His deity right out of the gate. I mean, they had left the boundaries of the faith. So he starts out with reminding them that he is the, He's the Son of God. And you know it's possible to differ on style and preferences and all those other things, but some in the church here had gone to the place that they no longer worshipped Christ, even though they were gathering as a church and, 
in naming the name of Christ. I'm sure you realize it's possible to confess Jesus with your mouth, but deny Him with your lifestyle. But did you know that what you believe about Jesus indicates whether you worship Jesus or not? God is seeking worshipers to worship Him in spirit and in what? Truth. Jesus is the God of the Old and New Testament, and anyone described in any other way is not God, even if you use the same name. Now, how is that, why is that important for us today? The Jesus spoken of in the Quran is not the same Jesus present in the Bible, even though he uses the same name. The Jesus of the Jehovah's Witness is not the same Jesus of the Bible. He's not the Son of God. He's not deity. The Jesus of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, i.e. Mormonism, is not the same Jesus that you worship. It doesn't matter what moniker, what name you give, it matters the content to that. It matters who that person is. The Jesus that, that saves, the Jesus that brought the gospel to Thyatira, is God who laid down his life as a substitute on the cross, was buried and and rose from the dead. This Jesus has discerning eyes. He is the one who has discerning eyes. Now, keep all this in the context of meeting the need of this church. He has discerning eyes. He, He has penetrating discernment. He has eyes like a flame of fire. The idea is insight. His eyes penetrate. His eyes can see purely, just like fire purifies. There is nothing that God does not see. And what he sees, he interprets perfectly because there's nothing hidden from his sight. He sees when we're alone. Hebrews 4.13, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to his eyes, to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Notice how Hebrews ties God's ability to see and discern and our account that we must give to him, that accounting Before God will be a perfect accounting because God sees everything perfectly even when we're alone. He sees what happens in the dark. Did your mama tell you nothing ever ever good happened after midnight? Nothing ever good? Why do you want to stay out past 9 o'clock? It's dark at 9 o'clock. That's what my mom used to say. Yeah, but mom, that's whenever the fun stuff happens. Is it when the fun stuff happens? A lot of times, you know, a lot of sin is committed in the dark. We turn out the lights and we think we can't see one another. We think somehow we're hiding in the dark. But did you know the darkness is just like light before God? Whatever you do in the dark, God sees as if it was in pure light and perfect light. Jeremiah 23, 4 says, Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth? He sees our thoughts and our motives. He doesn't just see our actions. He doesn't just see in the dark when when we're alone. He sees our thoughts and our very motives. Now, I don't have anyone in particular, any any uh, any movie or book in my mind, but I can remember things like like they'll they'll make uh, they made programs where your uh, people get embarrassed because someone else can read their minds. Right? Wouldn't it be a scary thing if everyone could hear exactly what you're thinking all the time? Probably wouldn't want to leave the house. Well, did you know God can hear your very thoughts all of the time? Not only can He hear your thoughts, He knows whether those, even if you, even if you change your thoughts, He knows the very motives that, that are behind those thoughts. Psalm 139.4, we read it this morning. Even before there is a word on my tongue, 
Behold, O Lord, you know it all. And Luke 12, 2 gives the summary of the whole thing. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. This God, who is Jesus, has discerning eyes. God discerns and renders a verdict, therefore flawlessly, and that discernment is provided in His Word. God's Word renders a verdict. You know the passage, Hebrews 4.12. I cut the middle of it out. And you'll probably have a hard time starting for the Word of God and cutting the middle out and going to the end. But the point is the end because you memorize the whole thing together. The Word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now think about that. The Word of God. We know God sees. We know God discerns. But now we're bringing it down to the written Word. Now we're bringing it down to the Bible. We don't have to play a game of cosmic go fish with the Lord or guess what is right or wrong. Just because the, the, the moral landscape changes in our world, in our families, wherever we're at, we don't have to guess what is right or wrong. God has declared it very clearly in His Word. And He's given us His Word specifically to use. Now, I understand that sounds elementary to you who are mature Christians in the buckle of the Bible belt, as they say. It sounds elementary, but I can't tell you how many professing Christians, even right here in Lynchburg, I've heard say, I know the Bible says, but... You ever heard somebody make that statement? Or, that is one interpretation, but I think... You ever heard somebody say that? Or even more seductively, people try to use even God's attributes to nullify His own statements. God is a loving God. And so that loving God wouldn't create hell. He's an annihilationist. He's just going to put you out of your misery one day. God wants me to be happy. So He will understand if I do X, if I, if I break my covenant. I mean, they're using the attributes of God, or if you do that, you're using the attributes of God to nullify God's statements that He has made, and they will not be nullified. Whatever God is... And whoever God is, is always consistent with the Bible. And if you ever think otherwise, you're wrong. The Bible's not. Amen? That's the truth. Whether we believe it or anybody else believes it, because that's what the Bible declares. He is deity. He's the Son of God. Their worship had gone so far that Jesus had to remind them that He was God. (laughs) He's the one with discerning eyes, and He's also the dominant ruler. His feet are like fine brass, firmly planted, shining like fine bronze. This is an echo of Daniel 10.6, where God appears with legs that gleam of burnished bronze. His feet point to His dominion. He will tread down His enemies. He will place His enemies under His feet. The idea of feet has to do with dominion. It's gleaming bronze. It represents purity and strength of His of his rule. Jesus has eyes that see into the most distant, darkest places, and with such feet he can stamp out all opposition to his rule. Now, that is how he describes himself to meet the need of the church. So, the church is in pretty bad, pretty bad shape, isn't it? Let's look at how he describes the church. There's the visible church's condition they're praised for their compassion, and they're indicted. For their corruption. 
Look at verse 19. I know your works. Same way that, he's re- that he started before. I know. Now, this one who has discerning eyes, who can see, gives an accurate assessment of the church. And he says, I know. I see. And I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your, your endurance. This is also fascinating. He starts with a, with a commendation. And he also says, look at what he says at the end of verse 19, the last are more than the first. They're growing. It's interesting that they're praised for their love when the other churches are not, and, and given how severely they're rebuked. Contrary to the church at Ephesus, the quality of life in the church at Thyatira was love and service and faith. It's possible to have good things going on in the church and gross sin within its membership. I think you can clearly take that away from, from this church. They were growing in good deeds, but they were also guilty of great sin. Now, I want you to pay very close attention now when we come to verse 20. I want you to pay attention to the pronouns because you're going to see four groups addressed. All right? You ready? Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. That's the church. That's one. Because you allow that woman, Jezebel, that's two, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to God. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, there's a third group, unless they repent of their deeds, that they're going to go with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children with death. There's the, there's the fourth group that all the churches may know I am, I am he. He addresses a tolerant church. I'm, I have a few things against you. He addresses an apostate teacher. That's the Jezebel that's there. He addresses seduced Christians. Those are the ones who commit adultery with her but still can repent. And then he addresses converted counterfeits. Those are her children that he's going to kill with, with death. Four groups are addressed in this one letter. And look at how he says, how he ends it all in verse 23, after he talks about the judgment that he'll bring on her. I'm he who searches the hearts and the mind, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. I have perfect ability to discern, and I am perfect in justice and judgment. God will give, God will not give anyone something they don't deserve and yet he'll not allow one sin to go without judgment. So the answer to that is fly to the Savior. He indicts the church first for this, for this sin of tolerance. He says, I have something against you. The leaders and the congregation tolerated. He says, I know your works, but I have this against you because you allow, you tolerate. The idea is to leave or to let go. It's the idea of permitting something. This is not just the idea of, of being self-deceived or, or something happening that you're not aware of. The idea literally is they knew it was going on, and yet they allowed it to go on. And some in the church didn't engage in the sin of, of the false teacher or fall into the bad teaching, but they did nothing about it. 
And so God indicts them. Isn't there a verse? Something about a little leaven? What does a little leaven do? It leavens the whole lump. Listen, we, we, we have a choice of whether we act like jerks whenever we communicate right or wrong. But we don't have a choice to decide what is right or wrong. You understand that, right? You do not have a choice to determine what is right or wrong. God has already determined what is right. It's right or it's wrong, period. You don't have to be um, ugly in the way that you communicate. God in His Word declares that for us. We also don't have the option of allowing sinful lifestyles to go unchallenged in the church. Church discipline, formal or informal, is an obligation. And you can take that from 1 Corinthians 5, you can take that from Matthew 18, and you can also take that here from the church at Thyatira. He speaks to the tolerant church, tells them that they ought to be intolerant of what's going on in their midst. He also speaks to the apostate teacher. Look at what he says to her. Because you allow, you permit that woman Jezebel, that's probably not her name, it's probably... Uh, he's describing her like the, the Jezebel from, from the Old Testament who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. She's a prophetess. She's corrupting God's Word. She's corrupting God's people. She's seducing them. And she's corrupting God's worship. They are eating things sacrificed to idols and per, uh, participating in, in pagan idol practices. She calls herself a prophetess. That means she claims to speak on behalf of God. She preached and she taught others to do wickedly and she even used God as her authority. Now, you want a modern day example of that? Go home. Well, maybe you shouldn't do this. Go home. Do this for five seconds. Go home if you have direct TV or cable or whatever it is and turn on the TV preachers. And it's a perfect example of what you'll what what was happening here. People claiming to speak on behalf of God, but seducing and perverting worship all in the name of, uh, of money. She taught and seduced God's people. Look at what it says. Her audience is not the unbelieving world, but it's those inside the church. You have all kinds of voices out in the world telling you what's right, what's wrong, trying to uh, discount God. The atheists put up signs during Christmas and everything else. This person does that. But here is a woman who is speaking and seducing the audience of, of God's people. You've heard the statement, don't forget to look for uh, the devil in here as well as out there. Her teaching led them to think wrongly. And her seduction helped them to do wrongly. Look at what it says. Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, one who speaks on behalf of God, to teach and seduce. She taught them to think wrong things, and she seduced them to do wrong things. Don't ever think that bad teaching doesn't lead somewhere. What you think about God, what you think about sin, what you think about the world, what you think about the church, what you think about anything will influence your behavior. Your will follows your desire, and that's wrapped up in your thinking. Specifically, she taught them to mingle the church with the world. Look at what he says. They're committing sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Thyatira was known for its guilds, and you had the, the, the all different uh, types of unions there, if you will. 
and that was wrapped up in their work. And so she taught them that it was completely okay to participate in that. She taught believers that they could coexist without being disloyal to Christ. They could worship at the pagan temples for business, and they could follow Christ in the church, and they were fine. Now pay attention in verse 22. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, but she did not repent. Notice it says, her time to repent of sexual immorality, and indeed I will cast her onto a sickbed. Now notice what how he changes this word, and those who commit adultery with her. You notice that? Every other place, including Pergamum, which was the church before that was pretty messed up too, the word fornication is used or sexual immorality, but Jesus specifically chooses to use the word adultery here. It's the only place it's used that way in Revelation. Pergamum was practicing spiritual immorality when they offered incense on a pagan altar and they unwittingly fell into self-deception. The followers in Thyatira were knowingly pursuing other gods. And Jesus says they're committing spiritual adultery. Jesus is saying this is not just a moral violation, this is a covenant violation. This is a violation of their relationship with Christ. He speaks to the tolerant church, the apostate teacher, and then he also speaks to the seduced Christians. And he begins with that word adultery. It's where we pick up our third, third group. Look at what he says at the end of verse 22. I'm going to deal with her this way. I'm going to cast her on a sickbed. And those, okay, there's the third group who commit adultery with her. They're going to go into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Now, Jesus has just said that he gave her time to repent, and she did not repent, so he's bringing an oracle of judgment. But these that are committing adultery, these are, those are truly in covenant with Christ, he's going to bring them into hardship unless they repent of their deeds. Aren't you glad that when you refuse to repent of your sin that God brings hardship in your life? You should be glad. Because the worst judgment that God could bring on you or me or any other Christian is no judgment at all. The worst judgment that God could bring is not dealing with you according to your sin. But He is going to deal with them as a gracious Father. He's going to bring great tribulation in their life, and that will continue unless they repent of their deeds. But if they repent of their deeds, then that will be removed. But look at this final group, verse 23. He's not going to cast this group on a sickbed, he's not going to bring great tribulation. He's going to kill her children. And just to make sure you understand and don't <laughs> miss kill with death. How else do you kill, right? He's going to kill them with death. I will kill her children with death. And the reason that he's going to bring this judgment, this final group is the converted counterfeits. These are not genuine believers. These are people. These are the offspring of the prophetess. These are the ones that are outside of the boundaries. These are the ones that are unconverted. These are not Christians that have fallen into sin that can repent. These are the ones that need to come to Jesus in the first place, but they're refusing. She had converted, brought some into her teaching, and these would face destruction. God calls those who sin to repentance. If you sinned even greatly, you can return to Christ. 
But those who become children of apostate teaching are just awaiting judgment. Because as long as you follow bad teaching, only bad practice can follow. Let me give you an example of of what I mean by that. You can commit sexual sin, even gross habitual sin, and be forgiven as a Christian. But you cannot believe fornication or homosexuality or adultery or whatever it is is permitted by God and escape judgment because you hold to a teaching that keeps you from repentance. You understand what I mean by that? The first step in repentance is confessing sin. And if you believe something is not wrong, you'll never come to repentance. You follow me? So these, these individuals that are her offspring are bought into her teaching, and they have convinced themselves that this sin is not wrong, and because they've convinced themselves this sin is not wrong, then they're never ever going to repent of that sin. Bad theology and bad thinking can be far more dangerous than bad behavior. You can repent of bad behavior, but if you're messed up here, if you think wrong about God here, you think wrong about you deny what God says here, then that's going to manifest in your life. To confess your sin means to say the same thing about your sin that God does. Homo legato, you say the same about your sin that God does. And if you don't believe it is sin, you're never going to say what God says about it because God says He hates it. So much that Jesus would be willing to die for you to remove it. He now speaks this word of exhortation to to the church. He says, I will kill her children and all the, that all the churches shall know that I am He who searches minds and hearts and I will give each according to his works. Before I get to this third point, does it grieve your heart whenever you see leaders fall, church leaders fall? It should. Even if, even if they're nut jobs. Okay? It should grieve you because there are people who believe that they stand for Christ. But don't ever think somehow that, 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 that God is is falling off the throne when that happens. You know what God does whenever He allows a leader to fall? God declares to the church and the whole wide world that no one is above sin. It doesn't matter who you are, be sure your sins will find you out. That's what God declares whenever people fall. The authentic remnant's exhortation. Look at verse 24. Now I say to you, he's back to the church... And to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, they don't follow her bad teaching, and those who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, those who are not participating in her practices, I put no other burden on you. Hold fast till I come, is what he says. To the rest of you, those who don't hold the teaching, those who are praised for refusal to succumb to her teaching, those who are praised for rejection of her ways, I put no other burden on you. It echoes the words of Acts 13. You remember Acts 13? The Jerusalem council when the Gentiles are coming to faith. They're not Jews, so they don't have to follow the law, the ceremonial practices of the law. So what do we do with these Gentiles now that they follow Christ? They're Christ followers, genuine Christ followers. What do we do with them? They said, don't offend your fellow brothers and don't go back to the temples. Other than that, just follow Jesus. You know what this says? 
Following Christ is not a complicated list of behaviors you have to learn and things you have to avoid. It's following a person and learning His ways. And if you're in love with Jesus, then you're going to desire to do what Jesus commands. It's a relationship. He's a kind Savior. And you're His follower. And as His follower, He puts no other burden on you. It's a beautiful statement. Hold fast what you have until I come. Follow me until I come. That's what he's saying. Hold fast until I come. You're in a wicked world. There's apostasy in the church. There's seduction. There's things outside. The world is falling down around your ears. So build up a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts to protect yourself. Is that what he says? He says, I have nothing else to you other than a genuine, heartfelt love relationship with me. That is what will protect you from the wicked world. Fall in love with me and follow me and do that until I come and you will be preserved. Boy, it is tempting to build up all kinds of extra-biblical things around us whenever we see the world going to hell in a handbasket, as they say, isn't it? But Jesus says, I put no other burden on you. Follow me. Hold fast what you have, what I've commanded, until I come. And then he ends with this an overcomer's promise in the kingdom. I will give, and he will rule. Verse 26, He who overcomes, there's the overcomer, and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. When the kingdom comes, Messiah will rule with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessels. There will be no rebels on that day. God will call them all into account. As I have also received from my Father, and I will give them the morning star. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give in that day because I will rule in that day. Now don't mistake, Jesus is ruling right now. He's just allowing what's taking place in the world. The Apostle Paul declares in the book of Acts, God has appointed a day in which He'll judge the world in righteousness. And until that day, the reason that He's allowing what is happening right now is because He is long-suffering in mercy. And He's allowing an opportunity for you to repent and the world to repent and Christ to be proclaimed. But there's coming a, work, coming a day when repentance is done He will have given the opportunity, like with this false teacher there, but she refused. And at that point, the one who has eyes like a discerning fire and feet that will tread under and take dominion, he will come and he will rule, and he'll rule with a rod. And all those that come against him will be dashed to pieces. And you, who know Christ now, when that day comes... He says, we'll rule and reign with Him in the kingdom. Should bow your heads. I can't tell you that um, a message about apostasy and tolerance is fun to preach. Um... I would much rather preach the grace of God and the the love of God and the joy of God. And yet, in the midst of a message, 
where God calls us to repentance and purity, there is grace and, and love. And so I reminded myself of that even as I was preaching it to you this morning. I don't preach this passage as someone who who is perfectly pure. I'm striving to be holy like you are holy. And I'm reminded that bad thinking leads to to bad bad doing. But this is God's Word. And this is something that's needed for us in the church today. In the first place, I think that you got to draw your attention as you as you apply this is is what four categories do you fall into? Which one of those four categories? Are you part of the church? Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know Him? If you do, praise the Lord. If you don't, today is the day. Because God, God will call your sin into account, and Jesus has already paid for it. So just submit to Him. Receive Him as your Savior. Turn from everything else to Him. It... God forbid, if, if you're in that category of, of a false teacher, someone who is not what they perceive, not what not everyone else thinks, and you know it, um, I have nothing to say to you other than the oracle of judgment that God has given this morning. If you're a Christian that's fallen to that seductive teaching, turn to the Lord. The tribulation that you're facing in life might be God's grace to you to turn you back. If you're part of the church and you're faithful, then Jesus would say to you, hold fast till I come. It may seem like you might be losing the battle, but the war is is already won. And the Bible has worn out many of anvils, as they say. And Jesus will rule and reign. And He's coming soon. Father, as we come before You this morning, we thank You for Your truth. And Lord, I do pray for anyone that's here this morning that doesn't know Christ as their Savior. I pray, Lord, this morning that they would acknowledge that You are God as You discern and see their life and their heart and their sin. As they see those eyes like flaming fire, I pray, Lord, that that they would then hear that compassionate voice that says, Come unto Me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. May they see the compassionate face of, of the Savior from the cross dying for that same sin. May you help us, Lord, to hold fast the truth, but to do it in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen.